I thought to uh, kick things off, I would say a few things about parables, just to make sure we're on the same page, right? So parables obviously are analogies told in, in narrative or story form. Uh, they're meant to illustrate a, a spiritual point, a spiritual truth, using everyday ordinary things, right? So uh, we all know that, I think. But um, perhaps uh, what we don't know is how to interpret the parables. So a really important uh, point of interpretation, I don't think you'll necessarily find this in Bible commentaries, but you need to be um, not just honest, but brutally honest when it comes to reading the parables. Even though your initial reaction might seem um, uh, unusual or unpolished, or maybe, maybe even somewhat uh, irreverent, you know? Because the thing that I recognize about the parables is that they are um, inherently provocative. So they're actually meant to stir something in your heart where you say to yourself in response to the story, this seems weird, this seems strange, this seems unfair, or I just don't know what's going on. Now, if that's your initial response to the parables, that's the correct response, right? But you don't have that response unless you're being honest, and on top of that, being brutally honest. So that's a really important starting point. At the same time, even though you're called to be honest, uh, you got to make sure you're committed as well. So where people make a mistake in terms of interpreting the parables or reading the parables is that, first of all, they're dishonest, right? So maybe they're trying to be too reverent with regards to the text, so they don't perceive the tension in the text. Or, you know, they, maybe they perceive the tension in the text, but then they think, oh, there we go, I knew it. The Word of God doesn't make sense. And they give up and they kind of look for other solutions elsewhere, right? So it's both, right? So it's, it's honesty, but at the same time, commitment, even though it takes time to work through these things because they are inherently provocative and, and kind of difficult, quite honestly, right? And you'll see that with regards to this particular parable, right? There's, there's a lot to it. So even if you think you can kind of reduce it to like a set, neat kind of moral story, um, as with all the parables, um, there's a lot more to it, right? So this is the Gospel of Matthew chapter 20. Again, the workers in the vineyard. So basic thing, there's this landowner, right? He owns a vineyard and he goes at different times of day asking various workers in the marketplace to work for him in his vineyard, right? Now, a couple things you want to notice right off the bat. First of all, this fact that the, uh, the, the, the landowner comes out personally. You find out later on that he does have uh, a steward, right? He has uh, someone to work for him in that regard, but he doesn't send him. He doesn't send a delegate. He sends himself. And so shades of like the parable of the two sons, right? So, um, you know, here's another rich man, and he goes out to his two sons one at a time to ask them personally to come work in his vineyard, as opposed to selling a delegate like the foreman. And it kind of begs the question, like, why is that, right? First of all, I think it's because of the nature of the work, right? So the landowner obviously represents the Lord. The vineyard obviously represents uh, the world. And what's the work? The work is the work of salvation and the work of redemption, right? And the idea is that this is like really intimate and really close to the heart of God. Like in a certain sense, it's what he's all about. It's built into Jesus' name, right? Jesus' name means God saves, right? So who he is and what he does in terms of this of mission, they're both kind of one and the same, right? So this is something that is all about what I am as a person. I am Savior, and I want you to share in the work of salvation and redemption. So because it's so important, because it's so close to my heart, I go to you personally. It's very important that the invitation is extended by way of the personal encounter. You need to be in my presence. You need to hear the tone of my voice. You need to look me in the whites of my eyes, right? As I extend to you this particular invitation to come work in the vineyard. Now, again, this whole thing, I mean, this might be obvious, but perhaps not. 
the idea that the landowner goes multiple times throughout the course of the day, and like in and out, in and out, back and forth, and so on and so forth, right? It, it has a certain, it conveys a certain image, right? A certain dynamism of, of God's life. One way we could put it is that um, God is, is pure actuality. God is pure actuality. Now, in contrast, you look at us, we're at various stages of potentiality, right? And I don't want you to be reductive here. It's not so much like God is busy and we're like lazy, right? That's not really the takeaway message, right? The way to look at it is that um, God, in God, obviously, is, is the fullness of life. Like God is teeming with life and beauty and peace and joy and freedom, the ability to give it oneself and in that find life, right? And when you see that, even this image of like, you know, again, the landowner going out back and forth, back and forth, personally speaking, like his very example is an invitation to share in that, in that blessed life. Okay. Now, in terms of the details, because all these stories are all about the details, right? So first of all, he goes at dawn, then he goes at nine, and then 12, and then three, and then five. But the deal is different, depending on who he's talking to. So he goes to the people on, at, at dawn, he goes to the people at dawn and he says, okay, come work for me in my vineyard and I'll pay you a denarius. And a denarius was the usual daily wage, right? Then he goes again to the people at nine and noon and three. And what's the deal there? It's not come work for me, I'll give you a denarius. It's like, come work for me and I'll give you what is right, right? It's a hint of mystery. I'll give you what is right, I'll give you what is just, but it will be fair. Then he goes to the people at five, right? This is the people where it's like an hour before the workday is done. So he goes to the people at five, and he doesn't actually say to them anything in terms of like, you know, a denarius or an amount. Doesn't even say what is right and what is just. It's just like, come work for me and uh, dot, 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 or working out later. Right? Now, I want to spend a little time in the whole five o'clock crowd, right? So again, it's all about the details. So he goes to the five o'clock crowd. Again, it's like an hour before like, the workday is done. And what he says is, why are you standing here idle all day? Why are you standing here idle all day? Now, it's the thing about the gospel, right? You got to read between the lines a lot. And so I don't think it's a stretch to suggest that the landowner seems a little exasperated, right? Why are you standing here idle all day? And so what is that? Is it just because he's like irritable naturally or is it something else, right? It has to be something else. So as you know, the gospel is originally written in Greek, right? The gospel is originally written in Greek and you're meant to kind of juxtapose the word idle with um, worker. And it's funny, if you look at the original Greek, um, there's one who works, so like a worker, and there's one who is idle. And if you look at the original Greek, it's like the one who is idle is basically one who is without work. Right? That's what it means to be idle. Now you think, well, what's the point of that, right? You go back to the idea of, of the Lord Jesus Christ, um, the fullness of life, teeming with life, and everything that corresponds to the deep desires of the human heart. And obviously that's his will for us, to share fully in that all the characteristics and, and constituent elements of, of his blessed life, right? So that, that's the invitation. And if someone is, is standing idle, it's like the opposite, right? So um, the idea of a working in the vineyard is an example of someone sharing in the rhythm and dynamic of God's blessed life. Someone who is idle, in a certain sense, is kind of the opposite, right? So it's not that simply that I have no meaning, I have no purpose. It's like, it kind of kills my being, right? So I'm idle to the point of approximating almost non-being. And the reason why I'm exasperated is because in a weird sort of way, I want you to be happy in a certain sense more than you want to be happy. And that drives me crazy, right? So the question is like, why are you standing here idle all day? And the response is, because no one has hired us. 
because no one is hiring. So just to kind of think about that, right? So living in the world, uh, the world will never really affirm you in terms of um, helping you become the person that God is calling to be, right? So we're usually seen and valued by the world insofar as we are functionaries or efficient in, in the realm of, you know, those things which the world deems to be important and valuable. Insofar as we don't correspond to that, we're dismissed. And certainly on top of that, the world has no patience for growth and development, right? So even when you think back to your own experience, personally speaking, um, a lot of people have perhaps given up on you or perhaps been disappointed in you. And especially painful ones, people who, who should not have given up on you, like thinking about friends and close family members, maybe even parents, right? Sometimes it's not even a word. Sometimes it's even like a subtle, subtle look, right? And that kind of weighs in our heart and accumulates, right? And it gets to the point where like, gosh, you know, after a while, even though I might not name it outwardly speaking, um, I've kind of given up. And so I'm doing stuff. I'm, I'm living, I guess, in a certain sense, existing and hitting my targets and going and doing things and working and, you know, whatever, meeting my schedule. But on some level, I've given in to a certain discouragement and despair, right? No one has hired us. And here's the Lord Jesus Christ, right? I will hire you. Regardless of your background, regardless of what has happened in the past, regardless of whether or not people have affirmed you or given up on you, I will not give up on you. But by way of analogy, and think about the parable of the talents, you know, so we all know that story, right? So a master gives various uh, talents to different uh, slaves, right? And so I think one guy gets uh, 10, another guy gets five, last guy merely gets one. And the thing to remember about a talent is a talent is like $1.6 million. So don't feel bad about the guy who only gets one. He's doing okay. And so with the guy who gets one, you remember what happens? He, he buries his talents in the ground. And what happens is he says to the master, well, I heard you were, you know, whatever, selfish or whatever. And I was afraid. I was afraid because of your reputation. And so I buried my talent in the ground. Now, one way to look at it is that he just sees this guy as being this terrifying bear. But I think there's more to it than that, right? I think parables are usually a little more nuanced than that. So I think the idea is that um, the third guy, and two is correctly, that if I'm a slave and I have no concept of ownership, even ownership over myself, that's why I'm a slave, right? And I get like $1.6 million, even times one. Implying in that is deep trust. Because remember, the master gives him, you know, the talent, $1.6 million, and goes away for um, an unknown amount of time without prior instructions. So all that, the amounts, the amounts of the gifts, no prior instructions, I leave you unsupervised, massive trust. And the idea is that, okay, like with that trust is this sense of expectation that you can do something great and that you can become something great. And what happens is the failure of the third guy in that story. He doesn't trust in his master's trust in him. Because, I don't know, may have been beaten down by the world and I believe my woundedness. I believe my woundedness more than I believe in God's trust in me. And so I bury my talents in the grounds. Now, with regards to that particular parable, we'll get back to our original parable soon enough, right? But with regards to that parable of the talents, the idea is that the world's their oyster, right? The Lord gives us graces and blessings and gifts and talents and time and opportunity. And, okay, what do I do? There are certain things which are pretty clear, you know? Think about the commandments, do this, do that. This is right, this is wrong, this is true, this is false, right? But at the same time, just like in that parable, a lot of the, not gray area, but lack of specific instructions. So go forth and do what you will. But the one thing you must not do is bury your talent in the ground because you're afraid.
because you don't trust in your father's trust in you, right? So here's this thing, right? No one has hired us and that's where we're standing idle, right? And so obviously he brings them in, right? Regardless of what the world says, I believe in you, trust in my trust in you. Now, you go back to the idea of compensation, right? So again, guys are hiring a don, you get denarius, right? Um, 9, 12, and 3, I'll pay what is right, I'll pay what is just. People hired at 5, there's no fixed deal, right? So no, uh, no mention of what is right and what is just, certainly no mention of a fixed amount. But if you think about it, their trust in their master at that moment is reasonable. Because here's this guy who believes in us when perhaps we have given up in ourselves. This is a man who sees something in us that perhaps we do not see in ourselves. And because he believes in us so much, I'm going to work for him without any promise of compensation. And so we go, right? Now, at the end of the, uh, the workday, obviously the foreman is called into play. So, okay, now he, you actually do have an employee. And the landowner says to the foreman, I call everyone together and we'll um, kind of settle accounts, right? So um, this is the first time in the entire parable that the uh, landowner is called Lord. And there's a gathering together, a settling of accounts. It's obviously an image of the final judgment, right? And, and before we get into like the nitty gritty, uh, just to kind of like think about the situation and the tone of the thing. So um, especially with the people working in Don, who in a certain sense are the focal point of the story, they come to the end of the day and they are tired, but at the same time now they're resting, right? I've worked all day, I'm tired, but now like I'm, I'm, I'm resting, I'm, I'm recreating, and I have a sense of expectation of being paid, right? And so all those things, all those different factors that come together uh, and make your heart ripe for, for conversion. So a little side note, but important nonetheless, right? So it's amazing how the Lord kind of sets the stage there. And what he does, of course, he compensates everyone, but gives everyone a denarius. But the key thing there is that he pays them in reverse. So he pays the people hired at five first, then the ones at three, then the ones at 12, then the ones at nine, and then finally the ones hired at dawn. Now, you gotta realize that if he did it in the other order, paying off the people hired at dawn first, and then they go away, they would have thought our, our landowner is, is amazing, he's so generous, and then once they're gone, all the other people, when they get paid at dawn, they're like, wow, he's really amazing. And everyone would rejoice and praise the landowner but he does it in reverse on purpose. Purposely to make the people hard at dawn mad. And it's meant to kind of be like, huh, that's weird, right? What's that all about? That's the point of tension in a text. That's why I started with that definition of parables, right? So they're meant to be intentionally provocative. You realize it's not really about making people happy. It's not really about the compensation. It's not really about productivity in the vineyard, right? The Lord is creating a situation to reveal the truth about something that was always there. I, I remember uh, yeah, reading things about filmmaking a long time ago. Some of you may know this, but perhaps not. A long time ago, before I became a priest, I was a lawyer, but before that, I wanted to be a filmmaker. And so I read a lot about, about filmmaking. And one of the things I read about uh, films and, and scripts, right, was just like, if you're writing a, a screenplay for like, you know, a film or a, a play or whatever, right, um, it does you no good. It does you no good to say that this particular character, Tom, is brave and courageous and intelligent and wise because that's the point of the story, to put characters in situations to reveal the truth of what was always there but wasn't revealed until they were put in certain circumstances. I'll give you another example which is kind of closer to home. So I, I just recently did the Lenten mission at St. Paul's in Alliston, and I was expounding upon the parable of the workers, no, sorry, the parable of the, uh, the weeds and the weeds, right? So... Remember that story where like um, the wheat is planted 
And all of a sudden, you know, when the morning comes up, it's just when the sun comes up, there's like weeds amongst the weeds. And the workers run to the master of the field. You know, should we, should we uproot the weeds? And you remember the answer that's built into the gospel is like, don't, because these things are intertwined. And if you uproot the weeds prematurely, you might damage the weeds. So we all want to answer, right? But then in real time, I was like caught, kind of talking to the people because, you know, the Holy Spirit is in like not just the preparation of the talk, but the giving of the talk. And so I was giving this talk and all of a sudden it occurred to me like something else. And so what I said was um, another reason why the master doesn't want to uproot the weeds prematurely is because of this deep sense of trust. And the master trusts that the power of the weeds to grow and flourish is stronger than the power of the weeds to corrupt and destroy. The power of the wheat to grow and flourish is stronger than the power of the weeds to corrupt and destroy. And I'm going to tell you, no word of a lie, I started saying that and I started tearing up and I thought, no, I don't want to cry in front of these people. <laughs> but it was one of those things that was kind of really instructive because um, I didn't realize until that moment that that was still a tender place in my heart. And that's the way the Lord works, right? I didn't realize until that moment, until I was in that situation, that, gosh, I guess I haven't firmly resolved this notion that, you know, the wheats or the power of the Holy Spirit working in the wheat, which is us, is stronger than the power of the devil to corrupt and destroy. And so maybe after this Lent's mission is done, I should probably look at that in the context of prayer, right? So anyways, one of those things, right? Okay. So in response to this payment of everyone, you know, receiving the same thing, what happens? The people hired at dawn, they start to grumble. The people hired at dawn, they start to grumble. And this is one of those things, you gotta do a kind of a cross-referencing thing. Where else do we find in the Bible where people are grumbling? Certainly in the uh, book of Exodus, right? So you think about the Israelite people, the sojourn through the desert, the promised land, right? So there's, there's that, right? And they're grumbling because, uh, you know, we miss onions in Egypt. It's kind of weird. Anyways. Um, but then another more striking and more relevant example you find in the gospel, right? So people grumble. People grumble when um, Jesus heals on the Sabbath day. It's kind of interesting. They grumble when Jesus heals on the Sabbath day. And that's a more relevant example for our purposes because it helps to illustrate um, something which is kind of off and almost diabolical, right? So here's this landowner, and he pays everyone, all the workers, denarius. So he bestows a good upon someone else who is not me, you know, someone beyond the workers hiring at dawn. And he bestows a good upon them, which does not diminish the good he's given to me because I still have a denarius, right? But then stir something in me such that I'm upset. And what happens is I accuse the landowner of being unjust and being unfair, right? So there's a lot going on there. So again, here's this manifestation of God's goodness, and his grace, and his blessing, and his love, and his mercy. But it comes in a packaging that I don't expect. It doesn't meet my narrow expectations as how life is supposed to go. Human logic, human traditions. And so I'm mad. And I'm not just mad. I, I want to attack the one who bestows goodness and graces and blessings. And isn't that kind of weird, right? I'll give you an analogy to kind of further expound upon that. Think about the, uh, the parable of the, um, the wedding feast, right? So there's all these people that are invited to come to the wedding of the, um, the son of the king, right? And you remember the excuse they give? It's like, oh, we can't go because we're busy with important stuff. I got to tend to the field or attend to my business. And so they're not robbing banks and doing nefarious stuff. It's like, we're busy doing good and noble things, right? 
And then all of a sudden, like, you know, like the, the messengers still come, but then all of a sudden in response to that, they get really annoyed and they kill the messengers. And you're like, whoa, that seems excessive, you know? And it says something about like us, right? So I'm sure you can recognize it in yourself. Nothing wrong with providing for your family. Nothing wrong with working in the field or working at your job, right? But there's something wrong with um, being attached to busyness or more to the point to identify my sense of self with doing and with busyness and maybe even like on a deeper level, psychological noise. So like I have to be busy like all the time because otherwise like who am I? And here is the master or the king inviting me to come away from my busyness and to abide at this wedding where I'm not productive, I'm not efficient, I'm just supposed to be here at this wedding, right? But I need to let go of all those things I'm attached to. But because I can't do it, I seek to destroy the thing which reminds me of the call to conversion. You know, it's, it's interesting. In, in the modern mindset, what we often hear is like, you know, there's like, there's no objective truth. There's just relative truths, right? So there's my truth and there's your truth. There's my sister's truth and so on and so forth. So um, you can believe what you believe and I can believe what I believe and live according to my truth. And we could be, you know, friends coexisting, living our respective truths. But what this parable reminds us or shows us is that that is not true. There's actually only one truth because it's the Lord, right? And now that we correspond or eventually we'll seek to destroy, right? So that's what's kind of what's happening here. Okay. Now, how does the Lord respond? First of all, he picks one guy out of the crowd and he calls him friends. So a lot going on there, right? So basically, you know, to remind us that it's not this generic thing, like here's the, the mob versus the Lord. It's like, no, it's, it's you and there's me, right? Who do you say the son of man is, right? So some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, da, 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 whatever. It's like, no, no, no. What do you say? It always comes down to that. And that's why it's like me and you, quite apart from the, the angry mob, right? But there are things built into this, in this notion of friends. Like, don't give in even a little bit into this temptation to distrust the Lord. You, you think about uh, original sin, right? So, you know, based on the catechism of the Catholic Church, we don't know exactly what the nature of original sin was, but what we do know is that it was based on a lack of trust in God. Somewhere along the way, it's just like I, I just felt like I can't trust God. He doesn't have my best interests in mind. He doesn't want to make me happy. I mean, he can't make me happy. I ever want to frame it. And so I, I back away from the Lord just a little bit in my heart. And obviously that expands and leads to original sin, right? And so when the Lord is saying to this one guy, one-on-one, like friends, it's like, don't give in to that. Because the moment you give in to a, a lack of trust in me, it's going to cloud everything that you hear from my mouth going forward because I can't trust him no matter how, how well he phrases this thing because he is untrustworthy. So friends, and he goes on to say, look, I've done you no wrong. I have done you no wrong. Did you not agree for the usual daily wage? Now, he's being technical here, right? So he goes back to the original agreement. So again, he's talking to this friend amongst the people who were hired at dawn. What was the deal? Come work in my vineyard and I'll give you a denarius. What'd you get? A denarius. So I'm not going back on my word. If anything, if we're being cheeky, you're going back on your word, right? Because you want more than a denarius, right? So that ain't fair, right? Now, theologically speaking though, it speaks to something else, right? So who is Jesus, right? He's not just some teacher, he's not some spiritual guru, he is the Messiah, right? So I come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, 
right? So friend, I've done you no wrong, right? This is what we agreed to, right? But then of course he takes it one step further, right? Are you envious because I am generous? Are you envious because I am generous? So again, here's this thing where God is good and gracious and merciful and kind to someone who is not me in a way which is unexpected and doesn't take away from the good he's bestowed upon me. And now I'm bitter and I'm angry and I'm envious and I seek to destroy. That's weird, right? And so in a weird sort of way, just to kind of make it real, it's like they're looking at the spiritual life and they're like, look, in the context of the spiritual life, in order for me to be a winner, there has to be a loser. In order for me to be rich, there has to be someone who is poor. In order for me to fully enjoy the spoils of heaven, there has to be some poor bugger burning to a crisp in the fires of hell. Otherwise, I can't enjoy heaven, right? And the Lord is like, that is messed up. <laughs> that mentality is incompatible with the kingdom of heaven, right? Um, and, it's, and it's provoked by me being good and gracious and merciful and kind. Okay. This leads to the particular commandment. Okay, so based on that, take what belongs to you and go. Take what belongs to you and go, right? And so the idea is you're excluded from the kingdom of God and now you're by yourself. You made your own bed, right? What kind of came to mind, uh, what comes to mind rather with regards to this particular point is this notion of um, final repentance, you know? Sometimes people will say that. Well, wh why can't I just, you know, live according to the world? But on my deathbed, final repentance. And I get both, right? I get salvation, I get to enjoy the spoils of the world, right? The problem with that, it betrays a certain lack of conviction that um, the only reason why God hates sin is because sin is bad for me. The only reason why God hates sin is because sin is bad for me. A lowercase version of the same principle, um, you know, it's like, okay, I'm going to confession. Might as well have something to confess, right? Um, and what's that? The same type of thing, right? I don't really believe that, that sin is bad for me. So when you look at this thing, okay, based on your mindset and your choices, take what belongs to you and go. I don't want you to look at it like this arbitrary thing, right? Because what the Lord is talking about here is really, really important, right? Because, okay, the idea is here's my grace and my blessings, but in particular, my love and my mercy. And whatever you're thinking about these things on the level of like earning and deserving and whatever, like that doesn't apply to matters of love and mercy. It's just when it comes to like God's love and mercy, always freely given, freely received. And as long as you stand on your, your rights to God's love and mercy over and above your neighbor's rights, like it doesn't make sense. It's completely incompatible with life in the kingdom of God and inheriting the fullness of, of divine life. And so, yeah, you made your bed. Take what belongs to you and go. Now, one more thing with regards to the parable. And so everyone, again, they, gets, they get the same thing. They get as an artist. And the thing I want to impress upon you is that that is not an arbitrary thing. And it's not an arbitrary thing, right? Because what does the denarius represent? It, it, represents, it represents Jesus. It represents Jesus. And in particular, it represents the crucified Christ given to humankind for salvation or redemption of the world. That's why it always has to be a denarius, whole and undivided, right? So that's a thing, but also it speaks to something about God, right? What can God give? God, in a certain sense, can only give himself whole and entire. And God is never interested in contractual relationships. He's only interested in covenantal relationships. Not exchanges of goods and services, but exchanges of persons. 
I give myself entirely to you, full and entire. That's why everyone gets a denarius, again, emblematic of the sacramental presentation of the crucified Christ. Okay. Now, you notice that um, the one friend that the uh, landowner talks to, he doesn't give a response to this kind of, you know, detailed response and diatribe, right? So, and the reason why is because this parable falls in the category of parables which are open-ended because how we respond personally to the parable dictates the ending of the story. Not unlike the uh, parable of the prodigal son, right? So there's a whole thing with the elder son. You don't know how he responds because it's meant for, you know, the scribes and the Pharisees who say, wiser master, he was sinners and tax collectors, uh, by extension to us. How we respond with the choices we subsequently make in our lives dictates the end of the parable. But it's meant to provoke a number of questions for us, right? So this is really fitting when it comes to this particular moment in time and space in the season of Lent. So I'm gonna propose just a couple of thoughts here, right? So in light of the parable of the workers and the there's a couple of things to consider, right? So when I examine my own identity and dignity and self-worth, right? Is my sense of self relative, if that makes any sense? Is my sense of self-worth relative in terms of like, I need to be the best, right? And this happens a lot, and you know, we do this sometimes in a subconscious sort of way. You enter into a room, who's the tallest, who's the shortest, who's the prettiest, who's the most handsome, who's the smartest, who has the most money, right? And how do I rank in relation to those people uh, across the spectrum? And it's just like, why? Why do that, right? As opposed to like, okay, like God is crazy about me. I'm his kid. I have intrinsic dignity, quite apart from my efficiencies and functionalities. Okay, and the doing, okay, well, well that's almost a different conversation. Sort of a related point, when I'm thinking about other people, when I look at other people and their lives and the things that happen in their lives, am I interested in other people? Like, really. Not, not just in the sense of just like merely being polite, you know, at parties and stuff, right? But am I really interested in other people such that when they succeed, when beautiful and amazing things happen in their life, I rejoice and my heart sinks, right? Mindful of the fact that this is my brother and sister in Christ. And when someone wins, like we all win, or is it still this lingering sense of competition? Third thing to consider, um, just think about motivation. So like, like, why do I do the things that I do? And one of the key principles in the canon gives in the Catholic Church is like, in order for something to be good, a, a, an action, a human action, especially in the context of the moral life, the whole thing has to be good, right? So object, intention, you know, all that stuff, right? So what am I motivated by, right? So when I do something which is ostensibly good, Am I secretly motivated by fear? Am I secretly motivated by this desire to earn, you know, righteousness before my Father in heaven? Or am I purely motivated by gratitude and thanksgiving, mindful of the fact that everything is a gift, and so called responds accordingly? The example that kind of comes to mind in that regard, I, I remember talking to my spiritual director um, back in the day and when I was in seminary, and he said, you know, a really common thing um, among seminarians so guys starting with the priesthood, obviously, is that um, obviously preceding their entrance into the seminary, they'll have a conversion experience. So before I lived a life of darkness, you know, and then I had this conversion experience, and now I enter into the seminary with, you know, a plan of life. And so I say my prayers, I have my prayer norms, I have more frameworks. But then as the five or six or seven years progress, um, they kind of receive this insight in prayer that the Lord is calling them to a new freedom. But it's the whole wineskin thing, wineskin thing right? It's like, in order to receive fully the newness of life which God wants to give to you, you need to let go of the old. It's not to say the old thing was, was bad. Maybe it served you for a while. Like, this is how we used to study when I was in grade school. But um, there's a new freedom that's meant to be obtained here, right? 
But then here's the point. The recurring temptation in that moment is that if I let go of my old structures and habits and routines that, came, that seemed to kind of keep me safe in the right relationship with God and like kept me from kind of going to the fires of hell, like will I, will I slip back to that life pre-conversion? And his point to me, it was and by extension to all of you, is that you got to trust that you won't, right? You got to trust that you won't. So a lot of times we, we live and die in a space of like fear and earning and entitlements and whatever, and it seems safe and it seems to kind of work. And maybe in a certain sense, it kind of kept us afloat and kept us away from more dark and evil things for a period of years. But, you know, to receive this invitation to, to kind of let that go, like you don't need that anymore, and you can kind of live from a space of gratitude and freedom and thanksgiving, to see that not as a threat, but an invitation to new life. One final thing, this is, has to do with like sin and repentance and whatnot, right? So the idea here is that, I mean, this is the sweet spot, right? When I come face to face with my weakness, maybe even the aftermath of my sin and my failing, am I discouraged? Do I give in to a certain despair? Or do I have a certain comfort level in the fact that when I'm weak, the Lord is strong, right? And it's built into the Lord's name. He is, he is meant to be Savior. And I never, I never graduate from that. He's always the one who's meant to be Savior. I'm always the one who is meant to be saved. Uh, I'll end with one final analogy just to kind of drive this point home. So this is from uh, St. Therese of Blasier, you know. So um, I, I just tell you this because it adds more credibility because of St. Therese and Doctor of the Church. Right? So she's talking about this in terms of the first person. So I'll, I'll tell in the same way. So she says, like, look, the way I see myself is that I'm at the bottom of a, of a flight of stairs. And there's many stairs, many steps, and the flight of stairs is steep and mighty. And my Father in Heaven is at the top of the flight of stairs. And my job is to ascend the flight of stairs, try my best to ascend the flight of stairs to be with my Father in Heaven. I know it's pleasing Him that I try to fight that particular fight. But I'm just a kid. And in fact, if more than being a kid, I'm a pathetic little baby, right? And so try as I might, I can't ascend even one step, never mind the whole flight of stairs. But still I try, still I fight. That's an important detail, right? I fight the fight that the Lord wants me to fight because I know it's pleasing to Him that I fight that fight, right? Even though I fail. And so one day, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is my Father, comes down to where I am, scoops me in His arms, and carries me all the way to the top, where I'm happy and healthy and in the embrace of my Father in Heaven for all eternity.